If you were with us last week, uh, prayerfully you will remember that we began studying in John chapter 15, and uh, we were, were looking specifically at the theology of abiding. Now, if you weren't with us last week, that's perfectly fine. I'll catch you up in, in just a moment. But we're thinking very deeply about this theology of abiding. One of the reasons that we're thinking so deeply about this, or one of the indicators of why we should, is, is really the setting here in the text in the Gospel of John. Again, this is this very short time period, uh, really this time of travel for Jesus and His now 11 disciples as Judas has already went out to betray Him. They're traveling now from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane where uh, the betrayal of Jesus will take place. And of course, he'll be handed over, rushed through a speedy illegal trial, and then ultimately crucified. And so there's this very, this very short time period where Jesus is really sharing his last words before the crucifixion with his disciples. Now, you've heard me say it before. It's something that uh, President Danny Aiken of Southeastern Baptist Theological Theological Seminary says all the time that last words are lasting words. And so if this is, this is one of the last things that Jesus is going uh, to teach His disciples, that He's going to show His disciples, then we must understand its significance for us. And so we're going to continue our consideration of the theology of abiding this morning. We, we did last week, we'll continue this week uh, to establish the, really the centrality of abiding in creating a healthy uh, discipleship relationship with us, uh, between us and, and Jesus. Now, abiding does tend to be a difficult concept for us as humans to understand. As a matter of fact, I had intended on, uh, on, on just spending two weeks sort of on the theology of abiding, but after talking with several of you over the past week, uh, we're actually going to pump the brakes a little bit, and we're going we're to spend three weeks here in John chapter 15 on the theology of, of abiding because I, it, it's a difficult concept, I think, for us to wrap our minds around. It's one of those things that it's frustrating because we know this word abiding should be more than just a word, but we have a hard time really understanding in a tangible way uh, what does it mean for you and I to have an abiding relationship with Jesus? Now, I think the biggest reason, if not uh, the only reason, that we struggle with this so much is, is the very nature of abiding in Christ goes against our human nature. So in our sinful human nature, we, we have this aversion. Um, we, we, we want to avoid relying on anything other than ourselves. Right? We don't want to have to experience any sort of codependence. It's, it's in our sinful nature to be independent, uh, to make, to make uh, decisions based upon our own emotions, based upon our own ideas, uh, all of these sorts of things. And so uh, the nature of abiding is not even so much that we're codependent, but that we're totally dependent. And so it goes against our very nature to be totally dependent upon anyone. And so it's difficult sometimes for us, even as Christians, to really wrap our mind around what does it mean for me to abide in Christ, for me to be totally dependent upon Christ. Because really an abiding relationship is in a relationship, we talked about this last week, where Christ is living through us. Right? It's not that we're living for Christ, it's that Christ is living 
through us. It takes the emphasis off of us and what we do, and it places it on Him and what He does through us. And so now we're going to see that play out in a little bit more detail uh, this week. But just to bring you up to speed, in case you don't remember, you missed last week, and in and, and verses 1 through 8 of John, John chapter 15, we saw that true disciples are, of course, abiding disciples. But more specifically, we saw that those disciples are disciples that produce fruit. The only way we'll produce good fruit, the true fruit of the vine, is by being abiding disciples. In verses 1 and 2, we saw that uh, in order to be abiding disciples, uh, we're pruned, right? There's this pruning process. There's this cutting away process so that we will continue to produce more fruit. And so sometimes it can be painful, it can be frustrating, it can be even burdensome at times for us in the flesh. But then from verses 3 through 6, we learned that abiding disciples don't just produce any kind of fruit, but it's this very specific kind of fruit. It's the fruit of the true vine, which Jesus is is uh, is declaring Himself, He's setting before the disciples that He indeed is the true vine. And then finally, as we closed last week in verses 7 and 8, we learned that the purpose of all of the fruit, uh, of all of the fruit that's being produced by abiding disciples is simply to glorify God. That the primary purpose of any fruit that you and I produce as a disciple of Jesus is first and foremost to the glory of God. And so that brings us to this morning where we're going to consider John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. Now in these verses, we, we see not really just another aspect of who an abiding disciple is. It is in part that, but this is actually a deeper perspective on the kind of fruit that the disciple produces. And so I want us to see this together this morning, beginning in John chapter 15, verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you that you love one another. Let's pray together. Lord, we believe that this indeed is Your Word, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is profitable for all that we could possibly want or need. And so, Lord, as we take this Word, as we, as we study it, God, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truth of this text for us so that we might understand it. Lord, that as we divide this text that what we know not You would please teach us, what we are not You would please make us, and Lord, what we have not that You would please give us through Your Word, the bread of life. We ask all of this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, in these verses, we see John is really marrying 
one of the central themes of his gospel, which is the theme of love. We see that uh, pretty consistently in his gospel. When you read his epistles, First and Second and Third John, you see that same uh, theme reappear again. But he's marrying that central theme with the central nature of discipleship which is abiding. And so now, as we're developing this theology of abiding, as we're, as we're gaining this better understanding of what it means to abide, we're, we're seeing, yes, its central nature, yes, how it causes us to produce fruit, but now uh, Jesus, uh, through, through John's Gospel here, is, is marrying this with this idea of love. And so the command to Jesus' followers here is pretty clear, right? It's, 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 it's pretty obvious. It's, it's, it's black and white. Abiding disciples will love like Christ loves, right? He, abiding disciples will love as He has loved them. And so this morning I want us to dive into these verses and really discover what causes or um, what enables disciples to be able to love like Jesus. What causes us to be able to love like Z Jesus, especially if this is so integral to our ability uh, to abide in Christ. So uh, we begin here with, with verses 9 and 10. Now, the truth in these verses is really tied back to the eight verses from, from last week. We're in some way seeing the type of fruit that we ought to be producing, right? But, but also one of the keys to actually being able to produce this fruit, right? It's, it's not just that we're producing the fruit of love, but it's that love is one of the keys to being able to produce this fruit, right? The key is we must abide in Christ's love. If we're going to love like Christ, we must abide in His love. Now again, the term for abide is unhelpfully interpreted in some translations as remain. I mentioned that last week. In fact, uh, the text that we had before us this morning, verse 16, it's translated as remain one time when it should really be abide. And so it's this, it's this, the focus is completely on this idea of abiding. The focus is completely Completely on this theology of abiding. But we actually go one step further to see that the way, we, the way that we abide in Jesus' love is through obedience. So now this is where it gets interesting, and if we're not careful, it's where it can get confusing. Because it almost seems like John's doubling back on himself, right? We've talked so much about how it's not a works-based faith. Right? We don't earn our faith through obedience. But now all of a sudden, we see uh, John sharing with us this instruction from Jesus where, where our obedience is, is central, if not necessary, for us to be able to love as He is commanding us to love. And so we want to be incredibly clear on this point. It's not that John has suddenly flipped the script and begun advocating for an obedience-based faith. In fact... Nothing has changed. What John is doing here is he's still alluding to a faith-based obedience. Here's the point. Obedience does not earn love. Obedience is the evidence of love. Okay, so let's make sure we understand what John is saying here. He's not telling us that our obedience will earn Christ's love. Right? There's nothing that you and I can do to earn the love of Jesus. It's not possible. It's not in us. It's a gift that is given freely of Him. It's a gift that is given in God's grace and in His sovereignty. He offers His love to us. And so there's nothing that we can do to earn God's 
love. That's not the point here. It's, it's obedience, our obedience, will be the evidence that we are abiding in Christ's love and that Christ is abiding in us. It's, it's this natural uh, conclusion. It's this natural outflow, if you will. Now, we can be sure that this was John's understanding of Jesus' teaching uh, just by considering some, uh, some textual context, right? When we think about uh, John's later writings, John's epistles, 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, here's what he says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. To love in deed and in truth. You see, the point is bearing fruit means loving others as God loves them and giving witness to the world as God intends for us to give witness. And so we can't separate our obedience to Christ's commands from our love of Christ. Okay, you can't, you can't separate the obedience of Christ's commands to us from our love for the person and the work of Christ. Now, it's certainly worth noting here that uh, this, this formula is actually completely reversed from that which was offered in John chapter 14, verse 15. So, if you remember when we were back in John chapter 14 studying that, what did Jesus say? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? And so the formula is reversed there. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But now, it's if you're going to abide in my love, then you have to keep my commandments. And so we see this turning of the formula. Again, it doesn't mean that John was confused or that he was wishy-washy or that Jesus was being unclear about how we understand faith and works. Instead, the intended result for John... The intended result for Jesus as He's communicating this to His disciples was to reveal that faith and works are so interrelated, they're so inseparable that you cannot have one without the other. And so this is quite simply the picture that's being painted. You cannot have love for Christ. Listen to this, church. This is so important. You cannot have love for Christ without obedience to Christ. Making sure everybody was still out there. You cannot have love for Christ without obedience to Christ. Insert amen. Okay, there we go. A little bit of coaching never hurt anybody. I mean, this is is it. This This is as simple as we can possibly break this down. You can say whatever you want to about how much you love Jesus. But until you obey Jesus, it's nothing more than a lie that you're telling yourself and everyone else around you. The love of Jesus will not be separated from obedience to His commands. His love for Him and obedience to His commands, or we might even say it this way, obedience to His commission are inextricably linked. Right? This, it's inseparable. Now we're going to see this in more detail a little bit later, so, so I'll talk about it more then, but, but we've got to get this out there as we understand the idea of abiding. Right? It's not something that you know, just, just like happens as the breeze blows through in the evening. Right? Abiding, love for Christ is all linked with obedience to His commands. They go hand in hand. You don't have one without the other. Now, that means that this text 
ultimately has something to say about the person who claims to be a Christian, but is really living in willful, persistent disobedience to Jesus. This actually happens a great deal. It happens in every church that I've ever been in, every church that I've ever been a part of. As a matter of fact, it's reflected in a statistic that one of our small groups came across this past week from Barna Research. Here's what it says. 65% of Americans identify as Christians. Okay, That seems like a pretty big number maybe to what we perceive in America, but 65% of Americans identify as Christians. It may sound like good news, but now let's listen to the reality. While only about 6% have a worldview consistent with what the Bible teaches. Did you hear that? 65% claim to be Christian. Only 6% have a worldview that is consistent with what the Bible teaches. Now, let's be clear here. Statistics can be tricky. And who knows how Barna is defining these terms. But I think the point remains. There's a lot of people who claim to love Jesus, but don't obey Jesus. There's a lot of people who claim to love Jesus but don't live a life, don't, uh, don't raise families, don't engage in the workplace, don't engage in the marketplace, don't uh, in, engage in the public arena in a way that is consistent with His Word. This is a serious issue. I mean, I, I could spend the rest of our time this morning talking about how big of an issue is, this is, and it still wouldn't be enough. We want to talk about why we're not seeing baptisms. We want to talk about why we're not seeing disciples made. There's nobody to make disciples. right? You can't make disciples if you're not in a genuine, abiding relationship with Jesus. Right? We're, we're complacent, we're, we're comfortable, we've got this consumer mindset when it comes to religion, this consumer mindset when it comes to church. Yeah, I'll do this, I'll check this box, I'll check this box, and I'll call myself a Christian, and I'll say that I love Jesus, but I'm not really going to do anything else to obey His commands. Right, His commands are real simple. If you've been in some of our small group studies, especially the introductory ones, we actually go through this sort of systematic look at what Christ's commands are, right? We talk about prayer, we talk about evangelism, we talk about discipleship, we talk about fellowship, we talk about studying His Word, we talk about the ordinances, we talk about all of these things. And they're very simple commands, right? But they're commands that we often neglect. Or we only, we only get part of them, right? Like the perfect one is giving. And I, I'm, you know, you're like, okay, here we go. He's going to talk about money. I'm actually not going to talk about money. Because actually, I think the easiest thing you can give is your money. I think that's the easiest thing for people to give. And so then we only partially obey the command, but, but Scripture is consistent. You don't just give your money, right? We do give generously of our treasure, but we're also supposed to give generously of our time and our talent. And so... We've cultivated this partial, at best, obedience to the commands of Christ, and then we look around and wonder where all the genuine followers of Jesus are. And listen, I think ultimately this, the responsibility of this, it falls on, on pastors, it falls on church leaders for allowing this sort of complacency to really, to really distort, uh, to, 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 to really dilute the church. Because it's what's happening. I can't tell you, I mean, you guys know my heart for discipleship. You know some of my experiences in discipleship and evangelism training. I can't tell you, I can't tell you the number of Christians, the number of people that have spent years, decades even, 
in churches that are just totally overwhelmed by the idea that the Great Commission might actually apply to them personally. But this is, that means this is a really big issue. Because it means we've separated loving Jesus from obedience to everything that He commanded us to do. And so this is, this is why it has to be addressed. But, but we don't like address this through programs. This isn't just addressed through, hey, let's do, a, let's do a training or let's do this, use this tool or th- that tool. This is something that is addressed personally, that's addressed intimately, it's, it's addressed in your prayer closet, it's addressed in your devotion time. This is addressed between you and the Lord. And so... We're seeing this idea that I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't follow everything Jesus says. That I, I, I love Jesus, but I don't listen to everything He says. We're seeing these ideas sort of multiplied across the church landscape. So again, there's, just, there's way too many pastors and church leaders and, and Christians in general that are allowing this ideology to erode the culture within our churches even within our nation. And here's the reality. I hate this term, but it is the reality. We live in a post-Christian society. And I'll tell you why we live in a great uh, post-Christian society, the evidence of it. Because what we've seen with this very ideology is that the great commandment to love God and love others has been turned into the great suggestion. Maybe you should do it as long as you agree with them. Maybe you should do it as long as you look like them. Maybe you should do it as long as you know them. And so the great commandment has been turned into the great suggestion, but as I've already alluded to, the great commission has been turned into the great omission in churches. It's like someone else's responsibility. It's not for me. And so all of a sudden, we've taken what Jesus says to His disciples and by way of them to us, Abide in my love, obey my commands. And we said, okay, well, I can do the love thing, but the obey thing's not really for me. I can, I'm good with loving you, Jesus. I'm good with receiving your love, but man, this, some of these things you've told me to do, that's a little bit uncomfortable for me, so I'm going I'm to take a hard pass, but I still love you. Jesus is making sure His disciples understand this is not the way that it works. It wasn't the case for these disciples, these men who had proved to be true disciples. It's not the case for true disciples today who are abiding in His love because they are the ones that by their new nature obey His commands. And that's it, isn't it? It's why it's possible for us to obey the commands because once we have believed in Christ, once we have received Christ, once Christ is in us and we are in Him, we're no longer who we used to be. Amen? We have a new nature, and it's in this new nature that we're able to do these things that we're talking about in chapter 15. But now let's look at verse 11. Let's look at verse 11. And and again, we're, we're thinking here about this idea of love. How abiding disciples can love like Christ. The first thing we see is we can love like Christ by obeying Christ. But now verse 11, incredibly important, we're able to love like Christ because our joy is complete. Now, if we're honest, if we're just completely transparent with ourselves, things like obedience, even love, especially when it comes to some people in our lives, uh, fruit bearing, being pruned, these types of things can, can be viewed as things that are painful and even in some ways things that are demanding. 
But if we come to verse 11, we see the real purpose um, or even personal benefit, if you will, of our abiding. And that is joy. Joy. We see that joy only comes to those who abide. Now we must notice the connection here between joy in verse 11 and obedience in verses 9 and 10. These, things, these ideas are not disconnected. And it's important for us to realize this because, again, this gets into why we've allowed this to be eroded in our Christian culture. It's why we've settled for uh, thinking that we can love without obeying. You see, the world tells us that obedience and joy are mutually exclusive. The world tells you and I that these two things can't go together, right? If you're obeying someone, then you'll never really be happy. If you're in submission to someone, then you'll never really be able to have true joy. That's, that's what the world tells us. That's what the world wants us to believe. Right? And so the world sets out for you and I this choice. You can have obedience and misery, or you can have freedom and joy. Now let's think about this from a biblical perspective. Is that not the same lie that's been told from the very beginning? Isn't that at the heart of the very lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden? All they had to do was obey. Really just this one command, right? Don't eat of the tree and their joy would be perfectly complete for all eternity. No sin, no death, no sorrow, no tears, no sadness. None of those things. Joy was completely tied to their obedience. And what did Satan say? No. Your obedience is actually going to restrict you. Your obedience is actually going to make you miserable. Your obedience is actually going to limit you. And isn't that the exact same thing that the world tells us today? Man, as soon as you submit yourself to God, as soon as you submit yourself to all those rules and regulations because the world doesn't see Scripture as a saving relationship, the world sees Scripture as rules and regulations. It doesn't see the gospel as hope for all eternity. It sees it as this, the world sees it as this restricting, um, for, forbidding of anything good in life, uh, sort of, sort of, um, a uh, 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 set, of, set of commands or rules, right? And so the world is telling us, if you submit to that, if you start obeying that, you're not going to do anything other than be miserable. If you want to be happy, you just do what you want to do. Right? We see it all across the landscape in our culture. And falling victim to this deception, right? Satan's good at his job, but he's not coming up with any new, with any new tricks, right? He's using the same one he's been using since day one. He wants you to believe that you know what's best and that God doesn't. He wants you to believe that you're in control, that you need uh, to be independent, and that God needs to be pushed to the side. But this, this is falling victim to this very deception is why we're living in this increasingly depressed world. It's, it's the exact reason why the limits to which people will go in order to find some sort of peace and satisfaction are constantly being stretched. right? Even beyond what our imagination would have thought 10 years ago. I mean, none of us would have imagined, I don't think you would have imagined that gender dysphoria would be where it is now 10 years ago. And it's all because people are trying to find some sort of satisfaction in, 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 in taking it upon themselves to change their identity. But here's the thing. The gospel has the answer. 
The gospel will change your identity into someone who is, yes, obedient, and that obedience is what will ultimately lead to joy. Not, not changing who you're attracted to, not changing jobs, not changing your gender. Man, none of those things are going to bring satisfaction. And it's why depression and mental illness is on the rise and joy and satisfaction are on the decline because we're missing the very nature of the gospel. We believe in Jesus. We love Jesus. And as we abide in Jesus and as we abide in His love, we love Him in return. And that love only results in one thing obedience to His commands. Man, if you want to know how much you love Jesus, don't ask yourself how many times you say it a day. Don't ask yourself how many times you tell someone else you love Jesus. Ask yourself, how am I doing obeying what Christ has commanded me to do? And Jesus says that true joy comes through obedience. Not through disobedience, not through independence, but through obedience to Him. He says, my commands are not meant to enslave you, but Jesus is telling His disciples, my commands are actually meant to liberate you from the bondage of your own poor choices, your own poor ideas, your own poor plans. And so when you obey me, that's how you are liberated from yourself from your own sinfulness that is holding you captive, and you are able to live in my joy. So what does it mean? What does it mean for you and for me to live in the joy of Jesus? Actually, the way Jesus puts it, for your joy and for my joy to be made complete. What does that mean, especially in the context here of abiding and love and all of these things? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that your life will not at times be messy. It doesn't mean that every day when you wake up, it's going to be easy and just filled with laughter. But here's what it does mean. It means that your life is ultimately marked by a confidence that Jesus is greater and more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. And that's really at the heart of it, isn't it? As personally as I can ask you, do you believe Jesus is the most satisfying thing in this world? Do you believe that Jesus is the most satisfying thing in this world? Or is the most satisfying thing doing what we want to do, following our plans, following our agenda? And you've got to understand, this is a radical concept. Because I talked about this, I believe it was last week, with the two different ladders, right? When we, when we find ourselves completely satisfied in Jesus, it may totally upend every plan that we had for our life. Right? You, you may go from a white-collar job to a blue-collar job. You may go from working a steady blue-collar job to the mission field in a third-world country. Right? But when we are totally satisfied in Christ, we see no other option than total surrender and obedience to Christ. And, and here, let me just add a little bit more clarification here. Joy is not a transaction. This is, going to be, this is hard for some of our minds to really comprehend. The joy that Jesus is setting forth here is not a joy that is a transaction. Joy is a relationship. The kind of joy that Jesus is talking about is a relationship. It's not like, it's not like I do this and then Jesus leaves a FedEx box on my porch that's full of joy. 
Right? It's not some sort of... But that's the way our mind thinks, right? And increasingly in our world, it's the way we're geared to think. Everything is transactional. I do this, you do that. You do this, I do that. Right? And so everything's a transaction. But the gospel isn't simply a transaction. Now, it is in the sense that His life was given for my life. But it goes far beyond a transaction into a relationship. And so pure joy, true joy, is not simply a transaction. It's a relationship. It's another reason why I think we struggle with this idea of abiding. Because we think of it as a transaction. Okay, my abiding does this and that awards me this. Or that accomplishes this. But abiding is quite simply just a relationship with Jesus that is more intimate, that is more involved, that is more committed, that is more selfless than anything that you could have ever possibly imagined before. And so then this begs the question, as Jesus promises to, to, to fill up our joy, right? For His joy to become our joy. For, for Him to bring us into His joy. For that to be the thing that fills up our cup of joy to the brim. It begs the question, and this may be an especially important question for some of you right now, depending on what you're going through. Does Jesus have enough joy to weather the circumstances of my life? We may not always ask that question out loud, but it's a question that at some point we've all wrestled with. Does Jesus have enough joy to get me through right now? Does Jesus have enough joy to get me through this season? Of course, the answer is simply yes. When it comes to Jesus, His storehouse is one of infinite joy. His resources are immeasurable. His joy gauge never reaches empty. And so if His joy becomes your joy, then your joy can always be full regardless of the circumstances. That doesn't mean you're always going to laugh at the circumstances. It doesn't mean you're always going to enjoy the circumstances. But it does mean you will have joy in the circumstances because your joy is coming directly from Jesus, the source of full and complete joy and satisfaction. And so now we come to verses 12 through 17 where we'll close this morning. We've seen seen now that abiding disciples are able to love like Christ because they obey Him and in Him their joy is complete. Now, without a doubt, these verses are packed with implications for both our theology and our practice, right? Our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. But I want us to focus this morning on being friends of Jesus as an absolute essential to being able to love like Jesus. Now, before we really jump into the deep end here, I want to address this idea of election. It's the doctrine that really comes to the surface or that's really in play here when Jesus says very clearly, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You. Now, this is a phrase that sometimes makes a Baptist, what I believe, unnecessarily uncomfortable. I want, to, I want to be very clear here. I can't spend much time on it, but I want to be very clear. We're not meant to think of election in terms of privilege. Okay, that's when we, when, we get, when we get sort of squirrely with, with, with this idea, when we get uncomfortable with this idea, I think that's what we're doing. We're not meant to think of it in terms of privilege. We're meant to think of it in terms of purpose. Jesus is talking about His purpose. 
for His disciples. Not some sort of privilege. It's not that He's choosing them to be some sort of elite group. No, what He's saying is you've been chosen for a purpose. That purpose isn't to be an elite group like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. It's not to rule on ivory thrones. The purpose is very simply produce fruit. Produce the fruit of the true vine. So what does this mean? How does it apply? Here's what I would simply say. Friends of Jesus are on mission for Jesus. Friends of Jesus are on mission for Jesus. Again, there's a lot that could be unpacked there and we just don't have time to do it this morning, but maybe we'll be able to look at it a little bit more next week. Now, again, we just, we just can't afford to miss this charge because this very much is a charge to the disciples. When we talk about obedience, if you're saying, okay, well, Brent, what, tell me what I'm supposed to obey. Jesus is giving you some real insight here into what you're supposed to obey. Look at verse 16 again. You've not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should, the text says remain, but it's that same word, that your fruit should abide. That whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, He may give it to you. So here's the command, church. Abide in me. Go and produce fruit. What kind of fruit? Fruit that also abides in me. It's this really clear call to discipleship. In our obedience, you and I should be producing fruit. Now, yes, I think the fruit of the Spirit is involved here, but you know what the fruit of the Spirit does? It helps develop disciples. I mean, that's really what the fruit of the Spirit does. It helps, it helps you and I make disciples. It helps prepare you and I to make disciples. And so Jesus says to His disciples, you're going to go out, and you're going to produce fruit, and your fruit is going to abide. So what does that mean about the fruit that they produce? Well, that fruit's going to go out and it's going to produce fruit that abides. And that fruit's going to go out and it's going to produce fruit that abides. And then all of a sudden you have this global movement of, of, of the church, this global movement of Christians, where in the book of Acts, that's exactly what we see. Abiding disciples producing abiding disciples that produce abiding disciples that produce abiding disciples. They didn't need social media. They didn't need TV. They didn't need newspapers. They didn't need print media. All they needed were faithful disciples who were abiding in the love of Jesus, filled with the joy of Jesus, and willing to obey everything that Jesus commanded. That was it. And now we actually have all of those other resources at our disposal to help us with the multiplication of the gospel. So Jesus is saying, I chose you so that you would go out and so that you would produce fruit. But He doesn't stop there, right? He doesn't stop there so that your fruit will also abide. Listen, there just can't be a a clearer picture of, of discipleship or what discipleship should look like than this verse. But notice, disciples aren't left to produce fruit on their own, right? Abiding disciples have this great resource, Yes, of course, there's the Holy Spirit that we talked about back in, in chapter 14 when, John, when, when Jesus promised that He was going to send a helper. But there's this, also this great resource of prayer that, that Jesus mentions in this verse. Jerry Burkett writes of this verse, Abiding in Jesus, the vine, and praying in His name, listen, implies that the petitioner, that's the prayer, has become aligned with the spirit and nature of Jesus so that requesting 
something out of line with the nature of Jesus would here be completely excluded from consideration. Such praying receives the anticipated results not because of the petitioner's worthiness, but because of the intimate relationship of the petitioner to Jesus. Let me simplify that. A true disciple, a healthy disciple, an abiding disciple is made so much into the image of Christ that it would be inconceivable for you and I to pray something outside of His will. That's the reason that Jesus is able to make this promise. If you abide in Me, if you love Me, if your joy is complete in Me, then anything you pray, the Father will do. You see, it's not because of our worthiness, as Gerald Borquette says. It's not because of our skill or our ability to persuade or convince God. It's simply because we are so aligned with Jesus that it's inconceivable for us to pray anything outside of His will. We're simply, faithfully, consistently praying in accordance with His will. So here's the point. When you and I are abiding in Christ, we are being instructed in this very passage that our prayers will indeed be answered because our prayers will be perfectly aligned with His will. Because the disciple who abides is a disciple who cannot fathom the idea of praying something that is outside of the consideration of His will. Here's the point of our prayer life. When we're abiding disciple, our prayers are no longer an outflow of our perceived need. Think about this for just a moment before we close. We're no longer praying out of the outflow of what we perceive our needs to be. Rather, we're praying from an overflow of our abiding relationship with the true vine. There's a substantial difference there, church. When I'm just praying in response to my perceived needs, I may or may not be praying according to God's will. But man, when I am praying out of the overflow of a joy-filled relationship with the Son, I can be sure that I am praying in accordance with God's will. Those are the kind of prayers that we're assured will be answered. And so to summarize, authentic discipleship is evidenced and encapsulated in love for one another that has been epitomized, of course, by Jesus who died for us, right? It's this model of self-sacrifice that is recognized by those who call Jesus friend or for those who do what He commands. It's their obedience, right? Their obedience is not a result of some sort of slavery, right? He talks about that. Because friends, the ones who Jesus has called friends, they have learned from Jesus about the will of God. We can only pray the will of God because we've learned the will of God from Jesus. And so if you are feeling weak this morning, if you're feeling insufficient this morning, you don't feel like you're up to the task this morning, you're probably on the right track. Because the fact of the matter is, for every disciple that abides, we have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to say, you know what, Lord, it's not in me. I don't have the strength, I don't have the power, I don't have the capability, because that's right where Jesus needs His disciples to be, to say, you know what, Lord, everything You've commanded, it is overwhelming for me. It seems impossible for me. And so, Lord, I'm just going to rest in You. I'm just going to live in You. I'm just going to love You. And I'm going to trust You to conform me into Your image. 
Lord, not that I would just do these things for You, but more importantly, more fruitfully, that You would do these things through me. And so as He empowers us, as He fills us, as He compels us to do what He has called us to do, then what's really going to be happening is we are going, we're going to begin to be empowered to do what we want to do. You see, when we abide in Christ, His wants become our wants. His ways become our ways. And so when we abide in Christ, God commands, God's commands, excuse me, and our wants, they come into alignment. And for the first time, we will begin to want what we need. And we'll begin to understand that we need what God wants for us. And so wanting what we need and then accomplishing what we want, that sort of, that, that sort of action, that sort of life is what brings joy. And Jesus, listen, this isn't a prosperity gospel. He wants us to live in joy. Right? He wants our joy to be filled. He, he wants to live in us and our joy just be an outflow of that relationship. And He wants a steady harvest of joy to appear in my life and in your life that is compelling to our neighbors, that's compelling to the nations, so that it's easier for you and I to go out and produce fruit that will abide. I want to ask if Rebecca will come. You can stand with me. We're going to, we're going to pray together. We'll sing together. And as we do, I just, I just want you to continue this Hopefully what has been for you a very personal reflection of your abiding relationship with Jesus. Do you understand it? Is it something that's real? Is, is this, is, do you really love Jesus? Is it evidenced in your obedience? Are you seeing this overflowing joy in your life? It doesn't mean that days will be easy. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be stressed or anxious. It doesn't even mean that you won't be depressed sometimes. But it does mean that you'll look upon Jesus and you'll say, you know what, Jesus, you've got enough joy for me today. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful for Your ways. We are thankful for Your love. And so, Lord, as we stand before You this morning, may... Each one of us search the very depths of our being. May we honestly and transparently look at ourselves. And may we be able to answer the question, is the relationship that we claim to have with You an abiding relationship? Or is it some sort of false or fabricated relationship that we're trying to convince ourselves and everyone else of all the while we go about living our lives our way and our brokenness and our frustration and our sinfulness and our disobedience. Lord, if that's true for anyone here, we pray that this morning would be the very moment that we turn from everything that is of self and that they would turn completely to You, completely to Your Son, Jesus. Lord, maybe there's some here this morning who've just been struggling with this practice of obedience. We've not really been obeying like we ought to obey. We've been neglecting some of our responsibility as branches of the true vine. We've not really seen any fruit that is abiding fruit come from our branch. Lord, would You prune us this morning? 
Would you call us to repentance this morning? And Lord, would you bring us into alignment with your will so that we can pray your will for our lives, for this church, for this community, for this nation, for this world, Lord, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.